Hey folks, Dan here. I'm excited to share the first interview on the MicroArch Club podcast. Today, I am joined by Philip Frieden. Philip has a great backstory, growing up in Australia and getting involved in electronics, programming, and computer architecture at a young age. He went on to work on a number of well-known products, such as the AM2900 family of bit slice logic chips and the AM29000 risk processor line at AMD, before moving to Xilinx to work on FPGAs. We only covered a small fraction of the experience and wisdom that Philip has to offer, so I hope to have him back again in the future. I also should extend a special thank you to Philip for being willing to be the first guest on the podcast and to Jan Gray for initially connecting us. With that, let's get into the conversation. All right. Well, Philip, welcome to the MicroArch Club podcast, and thank you for being the first guest. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, really looking forward to the discussion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, definitely honored to have you here. I think uh, we had a, an interesting uh, introduction to one another. Um, I had written a, uh, a blog post about a lookup table RAM or LUT RAM and had posted on Twitter. And then we had a mutual connection who mentioned, hey, maybe I should talk to you uh, because of your background in the area. And that, that might be something we're, right. we're able to touch on in the interview today. Mm -hmm. um, but I always appreciate uh, getting connected to folks like yourself, uh, mm -hmm. just kind of randomly or by happenstance like that. Yeah. Um, you're referring to Jan Gray? That's correct. Yeah. I've known him for about 31 years. Okay. And, and, yeah, and we met um, while discussing um, register files and LUT RAMs and doing CPUs in FPGAs, which has been very much an active hobby for both of us. Absolutely. I've mostly come into contact with him through now he leads or, or co leads the RISC-V uh, soft CPU uh, special interest group. So I know he's mm -hmm. doing some work on that front, but uh, he's definitely someone else who I'd like to have on yeah. the podcast in the future, as I'm oh, sure he absolutely. has some. Yeah, he's, he's a very smart guy, C certainly worth talking to. Absolutely. And, you know, it, you know, for, with regard to soft CPUs, we are both pretty much together the pioneers of, of doing that. Um, and it was actually through him asking some questions and then presenting his ideas that we discovered that almost concurrently we had architected CPUs that looked extremely similar um, using Xilinx FPGAs. So... That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, maybe we'll get into that uh, mm -hmm. when we get through Later your story on, sure. a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, going going kind of to the beginning, I know when, when we were chatting kind of off the air last week, um, you mentioned that you, uh, you know, didn't grow up in the United States, but part of your plan in getting into the industry and, mm -hmm. and you, that you actually had a plan, right, uh, right. was uh, this process of, of moving to the U.S. So I wonder if you could just take us back to uh, kind of growing up and, and your education and then sure. what sort of your plan was to okay. enter the industry. Yeah, so I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. Um, 
and I was uh, doing electronics and then computing from an extremely young age. I probably started soldering uh, components around eight years old uh, with my mother's help, uh, primarily holding a screwdriver over the gas stove and getting it hot <laughs> enough to melt solder. And then eventually um, someone bought me a soldering iron. Uh, you know, initially just making things like crystal radios and one and two transistor radios, that sort of stuff. Um, along the way, uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's these kits, like 101 projects uh, that Radio Shack and other companies made. And uh, Philips, which you've probably heard of, also used to make such kits. And so someone got me a, a Philips Electronic Engineer Number 8 kit. And so, you know, my earliest sort of transistor constructions was using that kit. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it's... The Philips kits probably weren't that prolific here in the U.S. because it really primarily existed in Europe and Australia was probably more aligned with Europe than the U.S. at the time. So here it would have been Radio Shack kits, Australia, UK, etc. It would have been um, these kits made by Philips. The lasting memory is that they used these really strong springs and for someone aged eight or nine years old, it really hurt my fingers uh, as put it, putting it. So basically, whereas the American kits had these fairly floppy cylindrical springs, you just push over the side and you could slide something in. The Phillips kits were built on a sheet of masonite with with a one inch by one inch grid of holes. And you pushed a pin from the underside which couldn't go all the way through. And then you then push this uh, very strong cylindrical pin from above. And then if you pushed it down really hard, you'd have an exposed loop. You'd put your wires mm. in, and then the spring would then um, come up and hold it. But getting those springs in place and pulling them off when you finished a project and wanted to do something different, I mean, it didn't quite bring your fingers to bleeding, but it was close. <laughs> so, so that's what I remember most of, about the kit. Um, the school I went to, um, so we're sort of jumping forward from that by about four years. So around age 12, um, the school I was going to, there was a maths teacher who got a uh, computer um what's the right word um timeshare computer terminal so mm -hmm. in we're talking 1972 that dates me a little bit because this, <laughs> this probably does it as well so around 1972 the school got um a, a computer terminal and back in those days computer terminals was something called an ASR 33 which is a okay. also called a teletype so it um, transmits and receives uh, at 11 character 10 or 11 characters a second and the mass storage available is called paper tape <laughs> right? and so um, you would with the with the with the ASR 33 terminal not connected to the computer so you're not paying for uh, 
for services, you would type in your program and punch out a paper tape. And then when you'd, you'd finish creating your program, you'd then use a phone to dial in to the mm-hmm. computer. So this is a little bit like bulletin boards of 20 years ago in terms of dial-up type stuff, except the data rate was 110 board. Um, the modem was the size of a PC mini tower case. Okay. Right. And all it did was 110 board. Right. Right. And so what you do is you'd quickly go through the login process, turn the paper tape reader on and read in the tape that you'd typed. So it was, you know, banging away at 10 characters a second. Right. And as soon as it finished reading the tape, you'd type run. The program would run for a some amount of time or it would loop forever or whatever and it would print out results at 10 characters a second right and then unless there was a good reason you would then disconnect from the service so it was how short a time can you stay connected and the way services back then were um, measured and charged was with a unit you've never heard of before called a kilo core tick kilo is the amount of memory that your program was using in kilobytes so like five kilobytes or 10 kilobytes right core was in core memory and a tick was a second so if you used 10k of memory for 50 seconds you'd be charged 50 kilo core ticks right (laughs) Common right. currency there. That everyone's yeah. walking around with some kilocortex in their pocket. <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, what, what kind of what kind of operations were you doing on the computer at that time? So it was mostly math problems. So um, you know, this is let's see, I'm in approximately this would have been eighth grade. Okay. Um, in Australia, that's called Form Two. So the naming of the stuff in it is quite different in Australia from, from here. In Australia, it's primary school one through six, and then secondary school is form one to, through to form six. So it's still gotcha. 12 years of schooling, but the, it, for secondary school, it's just form one, two, three, four, five, and six. So it would have been form two. Um, so, you know, we're doing some calculus type stuff, some linear uh, programming type stuff so you know simple algebra um, some things like uh, finding minima of functions that sort of thing um, and you know maybe writing some computer games as well but right. because of the um, the budget you know which was for the whole school you really couldn't get too carried away with with what you were doing with this one terminal shared across probably 60 or 70 students although most of them weren't into it Um, but you know there was a small group of us who were Um, for me I needed much more and so it turns out so so the service was provided initially by General Electric and then it was by Honeywell so the computer was actually a General Electric 235 Okay. Uh, Sometimes, some just called just GE two three five, but they sold that division to Honeywell, and so 
it started off being GE timeshare, then it became Honeywell timeshare. The computer center was located in central Melbourne. And that for me was a half hour trip on public transport. And so after school, uh, one day I headed into the city and found the GE building and, <laughs> and went in there and, you know, I'm a, I'm a, like a 12 year old. Right. Right. And, <laughs> and I surprisingly know something about this service. So I came up to right. the, uh, to the reception desk and I said, I've been using your service. I really want to see the computer that I'm connect that we're connected to, mm. right? Is, is there some way I can get to see it? And the receptionist, when I came in, she was chatting with a, with what turned out to be one of the computer system technicians. Okay. And and so she handed me off to the technician and whether because he was interested in helping me or maybe to impress the receptionist, either <laughs> of which is possible, he, he you know, took me in the elevator up to the computer center. And you know, there was a big glass window where you could look in at all these machines and the people in with white coats loading and unloading uh, listings uh, from the line printer, mag tapes, there would have been disk packs, but they wouldn't have been particularly much storage. Like um, back in those days, a disk drive would be a pack that was maybe 14 inches in diameter okay. and maybe six to eight inches high, and that might be 20 megabytes. Wow. Right? And, and that's removable. This is removable media. Right. Right. So there was a plastic cake tin, as I refer to it, over the top and a cover at the bottom. And there was a way to hold the, the handle in the top, rotate a latch on the underside, which would remove the bottom. You then place it into the disk drive, which looked like a washing machine. Right. And then again, an appropriate twist of the wrist, locked the pack into the drive and you took the cake tin off. And then the heads then came in from the side to access 20 megabytes of data, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I have text files that are a thousand times the size of that now. Right. So anyway, right. Um, you know, big glass window to show me, you know, well, there's, there's the computer and he pointed to different things and told me what they were. And I asked appropriately intelligent questions. And <laughs> he said, so then it turns out that as someone who actually did maintenance on the machine, he had an unlimited uh, account, mm. right? No, no killer core tick limits for him. Right. Um, I bet you were excited to hear this at, at 12 years old. Yeah, it was like, wow. So it turns out Honeywell Timeshare had a training room with 10 teletypes and a desk and a big blackboard at the front. And so they did training for corporate customers. And he said, you know, let me set you up with some stuff you probably can't do from the school terminal. And it was some game programs, right? Nothing particularly exciting. And, you know, it's still at 10 characters a second, right? Right. So he left me there, you know, to play for, I don't know, half an hour or so. When he came back, I said, I I've played enough, right? How, how do I get to really learn more about, you know, using it. And he said, well, for our corporate customers, we have training programs. 
right? <laughs> and so instead of just programming in basic, you could, if you want to spend the time, learn Fortran and Algol. Mm-hmm. And I was all for it. And so that started what was probably six months of me going into Honeywell Timeshare. Wow. Three or four nights a week and getting there usually around 4 or 5 p.m. and staying till about 10 p.m. And as I said, I did for about six months until my parents blew the whistle on me because my my school grades had fallen off a cliff. (laughs) But I was now writing three or or four hundred line Fortran and Algol programs at Mm -hmm. age 12. Oh, and basic as well, right? So, So basically, Honeywell Timeshare technician i don't know his name i don't know how i would ever thank him but he he gave me a resource that no other 12 year old in australia would have had right right it was just phenomenal and you know so there i am and i'm i've already learned the three the only language i didn't learn because that machine didn't have it was COBOL. okay oh and assembler so i hadn't Mm -hmm. yet done assembler uh, what, but, what instruction set architecture was that machine? Um, I I do not know. Um, I'll, I'll look it, it up and uh, put it yeah, in the show notes. Yeah, it's almost certainly does get a reference in Wikipedia. Um, okay. But and there were several machines. It was GE two one five two three five and two four five, and the machine okay. we had was a two three five. And, you know, these machines were 19-inch cabinets, um, you know, maybe 16 to 20 of them in a row, where something like 4K of memory was a 19-inch rack, 6 foot high, 3 foot deep, and, you know, 25 inches wide or whatever that a 19-inch rack is by the time you put the, 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 bat, the, 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 the wrapper on it, right? So anyway, um, so that was my introduction to programming. Um, and learning multiple languages and and getting already to do some comparative type stuff. Um, The the damage that did to my educational path was pretty severe and lasted me through to the end of school um, because there was a lot of stuff that I just didn't learn Mm. um, because I had I mean, on the other hand, what I did learn has lasted me a lifetime. Right. Right? Um, But, for instance, I'd be lost without a spell checker. Right, right. Right? Because that was one of the things that went by the wayside. Right, right. Well, that's so interesting. Um, You know, a a lot of ways, uh, it's a more uh, physical or or, uh, real-world example of kind of like uh, diving through the abstraction layers, right? You're, you're at the mm-hmm. end at this teletype, uh, and you have to kind of like go physically take, take public transportation to go see the thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's interesting to compare that to experiences today. One of the things, right. uh, with this podcast, for example, I'm trying to do is kind of like pull back some of those abstraction layers and, mm-hmm. and see what happens in the machine. Uh, mm-hmm. but for me, a lot of times that looks like, you know, going to YouTube and, and watching an interview or listening to another podcast. Oh, sure. Well, or so, listening to a gray beard on, on, right. <laughs> on, on YouTube telling you this type of story. Um, right. Yeah. And I didn't mention that, of course, that technician, you know, 
got me the appropriate credentials, Mm. no idea how, to let me not have to look for him every evening when I came in to to play on the system. But basically, you know, no one in management either knew about it or cared about it. Um, But it was just a a wonderful learning experience for me. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. So after that, a few years later, so around 1974, um, I started working, well, playing with, um, actually, was playing and some work uh, on a PDP 8. So the okay. deck computers uh, really dominated um, my early uh, com- you know, hands on uh, computing. So there was a how did this happen? So I was working as a summer job. So in Australia, the end of the school year is, you know, end of November. And then we have like eight to 10 weeks off, which is end of school year and Christmas. And it's the middle of summer in Australia. And so um, we can get pretty long um, summer jobs, right? Right. Uh, significantly longer than what you can get here in the U.S. And so I got a summer job working in the electronics department of a hospital, right? And this was arranged by my father, who was the head surgeon at that hospital, right? And, um, you know, he, he put a nice word into the head of the electronics department. And so in a... I don't know if they do it now, but at least back in those days, hospitals had, as I said, a hospital uh, a electronics department with maybe four or five electronic engineers, and primarily uh, they were doing equipment repair. Right. But they also had, um, uh, they did some design work because the hospital, uh, the large hospitals, and this was a large hospital, um, tended to be linked to a university. And mm-hmm. so you'd have university doctors who taught at the university, practiced at the hospital, and might be doing some research. And if that right. research needed special instrumentation, then the hospital had an electronics department who often you know, helped along. Right? So I got this 10-week or so Christmas holiday job, and the head of the department, you know, had me primarily doing, you know, you know, go, go, go pick up this ECG machine on the eighth floor of the hospital and bring it back for repair or go see if they, you know, if they forgot to plug it in. Right. right. There was always, there was always these jokes of nurses, you know, failing to plug in something or, you know, getting, you know, terminals round the wrong way. Um, once had, I don't know, it was some piece of uh, equipment that was somewhat portable in a box, you know, about that big by that big. Whoops, right? And someone said, you know, disinfect it. And, you know, what they probably meant was, you know, get some appropriate cleaning agent and wipe down the front panel, whatever. They put it into a bucket of disinfectant. (laughs) Right. So, you know, so sometimes, you know, some things were beyond repair. Anyway, um, because they had design capability, 
the head of the department said, you know, as well as doing this repair stuff, and they had me doing, you know, once I'd actually shown that I understood what was going on, I was actually doing repair of equipment. You know, some of it was fairly simple, you know, things like broken battery terminals or wires to a to a potentiometer or, you know, a right. frayed terminal to an electrode for an ECG machine. Now, some of it was simple, but some of it was some bug tracking. Um, but he said, you know, we have the parts, why don't you make a digital clock, right? Mm. And back then... Uh, you know, it was 7400 series ICs uh, and Nixie tubes. And so I made um, a four-digit uh, clock and he let me just basically, you know, work through uh, the data book and gave me guidance when I asked for it. But um, you know, as well as the experience of working, you know, in a, in a real you know, engineering uh, department, this is, so now I'm, I guess around 14. Yeah. Um, So I'm, you know, I actually got to design a digital clock. And back then you were having to put a lot of components together, right. To actually, you know, build different modulo counters for, you know, 59 rolling over to zero, zero and, you know, know, 12 rolling over to one, um, you know, that, that sort of uh, stuff. So, um, so I ended up with a with a digital clock. I ended up with some experience, but as I said, this was a teaching hospital, and mm-hmm. one of the departments that I served um, had a PDP eight computer, and so I requested ability to use it right. in the evenings when no one was using it, and the medical researcher knew me not by my correct name. And Philip Frieden, but my name was Joe Friedenson, as in my father's name is Joe, and I'm Joe Frieden's son. Fair enough, right? fair enough. And that carried insane um, creds in that hospital, <laughs> right? So, so I was allowed to play with the PDP-8. Now, the PDP-8 is, in this case, was 8K of 12-bit memory. It executed a, what today we would call pretty much a risk instruction set, and yet mm-hmm. it was from the nine. It, the PDP-8 family dates back to the mid-1960s and extends through to the end of the 1970s in terms of six or seven different models of machine. And right. the 8E was probably by far the most prolific mini-computer that deck ever sold um it set you know it was priced a down around 10 to 12k and you could run it had a interpreted language similar to basic called focal um which looks not that different from modem line noise Mm -hmm. um it's a little bit more readable than than apl (laughs) And a little bit less readable <laughs> than basic, um, but it, it ran focal, and so you'd have. Well, actually, let me think. The interpreter was actually two k two k words, and so on a four k PDP eight, which is the smallest configuration, right. you got two k words, which was approximately four k half words, which are six bits. And mm-hmm. if you don't need lowercase because your teletype 
only does up a case. Right. You can pack two characters per 12-bit word, mm-hmm. and if you put three 12-bit words together for floating point, so, so for integer, it was 12-bit integers, so plus minus 2,000 through to plus 2,000. Right. 2048, but floating point would be a 12-bit exponent and a 24-bit mantissa. Mm-hmm. So its uh, its range was actually better than IEEE uh, right. single precision floating point, <laughs> which is 32 bits uh, split as uh, 8 and 24. So there was four yeah. more bits of uh, mantissa, and so it was... It actually had better range than IEEE, which didn't exist back then. I mean, that didn't come right. along for another 15, 20 years. Um, but you had this PDP-8 with only 4K of memory, and it had very good floating point, um, and you could write you could write programs that fitted into that 2K uh, words of memory, including your both your, your program and any array data, mm-hmm. right? And right. the PDP-8s could go up to a maximum of 32K. Gotcha. Right. And yeah, uh, the, the PDP-8 has, has come up uh, a few times in, in chatting with folks. And uh, was PDP-8 the the machine that Unix was originally written on? No. I want to say it was a, a PDP-11, right? 11, that's right. right. Oh, okay. yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the reason they're all called... So this is... This is what I have read many times and heard from people. The reason DEC called their machines PDPs rather than computers, right? They weren't called computers. They were called programmable data processors. Mm-hmm. And that was because they were aimed at individuals who might work at a company that had a big computer department that was in charge of buying all computers and keeping them behind uh, big glass-walled rooms with right. the uh, high priests in their white coats. And so for researchers who wanted to get a computer in their lab, they could order it as a PDP. Right. And the computer Didn't go department... Didn't the red tape. Right. Bypass yep. all the red tape. So, you know, and, you know, they were also, you know, very prolific in universities because Deck made some... Uh, large systems, uh, mm-hmm. the PDP-10 and the PDP-20 were campus-sized machines that might have a hundred terminals connected to them. Mm. So the terminals were still these ASR33s, right? These dominated uh, the 70s. The, um, they were eventually supplanted by the what they called glass teletypes, which we would now refer to as dumb terminals. Okay. Right, so 24 lines of 80 characters and a keyboard and probably, uh, depending on when you did this, there may still be a paper tape reader and punch associated with it. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. So anyway, um, I t- the, the, there was a department there that had a PDP-8 and they didn't have anyone to program it. And I said, I can program <laughs> and so, uh, one of the researchers, uh, you know, who had had got the pro- had got the computer for his department, but hadn't managed to um, get the the funding to get a programmer, um, had me doing programming. And so I was writing uh, simple um, 
data acquisition programs, uh, absolute real-time uh, stuff written either in Focal or in Fortran 2. Mm. Um, that's, a, that's a much earlier version of Fortran than... I mean, most people who learn Fortran learn Fortran 4 or something more recent, but there was an earlier version called Fortran 2 that was sufficient for the for the <laughs> for what we were doing and so this was um uh, programming on the pdp8 still everything with paper tapes uh but now with a fortran compiler and that meant the fortran compiler was on a paper tape so you'd load the fortran compiler from a paper tape then load your program and it would then read it in and you'd read you'd read in the paper tape several times because it would first of all build a symbol table, then mm -hmm. read again, right? And so, you know, compiling might take two or three hours of feeding, the first of all, the Fortran compiler in, then loading the linker, and right. then loading the libraries, and then loading the intermediate binary. And, and then ve at the very end of three or four hours, right, you'd get a new paper tape, which is a binary version of your what was your Fortran program, right? right. And were you were and, you like the the linker and the libraries? You're manually loading these into the machine, or yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's interesting. So that's like steps we still take today, right? To to right. Uh, compile and link a program, but you're you're physically yeah. you know participating in the process, right? Right. In fact, so um, you know, for, so for the Fortran compiler. It was like a two or three pass compiler. And so you'd load. So the first paper tape you'd load would be Fortran compiler pass one and then put in your paper tape. Mm -hmm. It would build a symbol table in memory. You would then load in Fortran compiler pass two, which would overwrite pass one, but it would now have the data left over from pass one. I then see. you read in your program source a second time right and now it's starting to build it's starting to build the i i guess it's the data structures and the code tree um and figuring out branch distances and that sort of stuff and then there was a third pass oh the third pass output the was the one that took the whatever the data structures had been built and then turned it into relocatable binary mm -hmm. right so now you've got a relocatable binary version of your program, but no libraries, right, yet. Right. And then you load the linker, and then you might, if you wrote your program in multiple modules, you'd have a relocatable binary paper tape for each one. Mm -hmm. And so you'd load in the linker program, then you'd load in all of your things. It would then link between them for where symbols match between your different modules. Right. Right. And then it would see, here's the list I don't yet know. And it would then tell you which um, library tapes it needed to merge into your program, right? So things like the floating point library, uh, the sign and cos library, you know, that sort of thing. Right. right? And would and you, at the end, would it be a, so uh, it would do all of that and compile a, a statically compiled binary. There's no uh, like runtime right. dependencies. Yeah, and, and it was a, a bare metal thing. There's no operating system in this environment. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, in the paper tape version of this stuff, there's no operating system. Gotcha. Uh, okay. At some point, 
you can add mass storage like um, the Dex primary thing was a, a tape drive that had a one inch wide or three quarter inch wide tape called Deck Tape, D-E-C-T-A-P-E. <laughs> and it was a randomly accessed tape that was pre-formatted into blocks. And so there was an operating system at the beginning of the tape and you could have multiple files and the basic compiler and the Fortran compiler lived on tape. And so all of that paper tape stuff went away, mm -hmm. right? If you could afford to buy that operating system and have the, the, the mag tape drives. Right. So a lot of, a, a lot of tape spinning, um, spinning around, right? right. Th these are on little hubs that are only about four and a half, five inches in diameter. Right? Okay. And yeah. the tape just goes off a reel, over the head, and down onto the other reel. Right. So anyway, um, I managed to talk the researcher that I was doing work for into finding the money to let me design a floppy disk drive system. Mm. And so this was my first big um, hardware design. And that was to design a board to plug into the PDP-8 that um, could talk to a disk drive. And the disk drive was from Memorex. It used 8-inch floppies um, and could hold about a quarter of a megabyte. And what was the, okay. the interface that you'd be plugging into okay. on the PDP-8? Okay, so the PDP-8 has a backplane called Omnibus. And mm -hmm. actually, probably in terms of... In terms of... Um, a sea change in how computers were built. I believe the PDP-8 was the first bus-based computer. Okay. Where where any slot in the backplane could take any card. Mm -hmm. Everything prior to that, every place that you plugged a card in, there was only one card that went into that position. Mm -hmm. Right. And but the PDP-8 used these boards that are, I don't know about. 10 inches wide and eight inches high. And, you know, there'd be a, a single board was the clock. Another one was the registers. Another one was the ALU. Three of them together was 4K of uh, memory. The, the middle board was the, um, was the actual core plane. And then one of the boards was the read-write amplifiers and the other one was the bus interface. Gotcha. Uh, but... But the bus interface basically ticked away at 1.2 or 1.4 microseconds. Uh, oh, the the model I'm talking about is the PDP-8E. Okay. Right. And it, it ticks away uh, at about 1.2 or 1.4 microseconds uh, per instruction. Um, typical instructions took three clock cycles, so around... Mm -hmm four or five microseconds per instruction. So 200 um, op operations per second, 200K operations a second. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's 12 bits of address, 12 bits of data, and a bunch of timing signals that tell you whether you're doing reads or writes, etc. Right. And so not only did I have to design the board, I had to write the device driver and then I had to read in, I had to get the operating system onto the floppy for mm -hmm. the very first time. 
and the operating was system was distributed as about 20 paper tapes. So okay. <laughs> the actual, so now instead of using the Fortran compiler, I'm now using the cross, the assembler, mm-hmm. right? And the assembler had a similar multiple passes to do an assembly and a, and a linking process to end up with basically the binary version of my device driver, right? And so the, this, the operating system was called OS8, and there are characteristics of OS8 that you will still see today in the DOS boxes on a Windows 11 PC, mm. PC right? The, the, the syntax on that command line, it all goes back to OS8. So everything in, well, OS8, when you get to the PDP-11s, it was something called RT-11. When you get into PCs, it was called DOS, MS-DOS. Right, that they all use the same basic command line syntax, um, and you know that still exists today in the DOS box or the command box that you see on your latest Windows computers. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's differences, but it basically looks very, very similar. Right. Um, right. So, so, so you were anyway, working on this disk drive, right? And uh, right. So, yeah, go ahead. Right. And then and then I had to load the operating system and Deck built the operating system to be distributed as paper tapes knowing that some people would have their own device drivers rather mm-hmm. than Decks. And so there was a a build phase for the OS8 operating system where you aren't actually running the operating system, you're running a a program called build and you're telling it which devices you want right and which services you want OS8 to provide and you get to build a custom image of the operating system and the very last stage is you discover if the device drive you wrote actually works right which is when it now has to write it to the media right and if that fails of course you know it's it's back to Square back point. to the assembler right. right to 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 figure out what went wrong so you know that but all these machines all had front panels with toggle switches and LEDs, right? And, you know, you might want to insert an image. You know, there's lots of PDP-8 images uh, available on the web that you could insert a pop-up of, right? So, right. you know, basically you can single step through a program, examine any memory location, change the value of any memory location all from the front panel. So, you know, you can certainly just load the device driver, right, and then create a little five-line program that calls it and tells it to transfer 128 bytes from this place in memory to that place on disk, right? Right. So, so anyway, this is me, aged 14, writing operating system device drivers <laughs> and then building operating systems. Right. Right. And so this was this was now my path up sort of through the really getting into the lower levels, not just of, you know, writing assembler code, um, but of understanding operating system principles. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, this was that there weren't any other kids around that were doing the same stuff as what I was doing. Right. I, I can um, imagine it was fairly unique. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, again, a great education. I would say 
the manuals that digital equipment made available for the PDP-8 um, and then later for the PDP-11, those they had some introductory programming books mm -hmm. that started at the very low levels of assembler that were absolutely excellent, right? For someone who had no detailed knowledge or, you know, university training, their books, which are, you can, they're all available on BitSavers, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I mean, it's kind of historical and, you know, not really relevant, but if, if you want to have a read, there's a book that came out in 1969 called Introduction to Programming by Digital Equipment for the PDP-8. And it takes you through assembler and explains, they didn't call them pointers back then, but mm -hmm. indirect addresses and memory references and a superb coverage of two's complement arithmetic and you know, just understanding at the very lowest level. You, you mentioned about sort of levels of abstraction. This has right. been very much something that I've always... Um, thought a lot about mm -hmm. from back in those days because already I could see it and it, the the model that a lot of people use is they um, they call it the the onion model right right it's it's layers upon layers and I've um, strongly held that the quality of the work that you do at a given level of abstraction is improved by understanding the level below that you're not using and maybe the level above that is you're providing a service to. Right. Right. Yeah. So I've, I heard a, a, a quote pretty recently that, you know, w when programming, a lot of times we try to be very respectful of the abstraction boundaries on either side, right? Because that's what allows things to mm -hmm. interface well together. But from right. uh, the programmer perspective, right, it's our job to actually venture across those boundaries to understand them, to, to understand what happens when we interface with them. So I think that's a, 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 a key thing. Absolutely. In, in fact, really, there are two things that come from understanding the level below that, that you're working. So if you're, let, let's say you're, you're writing C, a C program or a basic program. Well, actually, C and basic are different enough. Right, because C gets compiled to assembler. Right. Basic is, at least traditionally, is interpreted. So there's another layer for basic right. that doesn't exist. Well, it's a different layer. For C, it's the compiler. For basic, it's the interpreter. But mm -hmm. then eventually you're executing assembler to implement um, the desired effect. Right. Um, the better you understand that layer below whether it's basic or C, that is the assembler level, the better you write your code, right? When you're writing C code, if you know how it's likely to be compiled, right? There's a reason that you might write A equals B left shift one, mm -hmm. as opposed to A equals B plus B, right. or A equals B times B. I mean, they all achieve the same thing, but if, if you don't have a lot of optimization going on, the A equals B left shift one is by far the fastest. Right, right. right? Un unless the machine happens to not optimize the execution time for that.
Right. right. You know, in, in, in my experience, the, uh, uh, that kind of like understanding, uh, let's say this is not always the quality, right? There, there's many things that impact performance at the physical level, but mm-hmm. the number of instructions, right, that you're you're going to be translated to, that's kind of like the first level of understanding maybe how, how um, uh, you know, higher level code you write is going to be uh, running. But then even beyond that, right, understanding, um, and it varies in complexity across different instruction sets, but what's the performance impact of executing a given instruction, right? And that goes into how the the um, processor is designed and that sort of thing. It seems like you ventured down uh, kind of, you know, you kept going into that level of understanding that. What was mm-hmm. kind of like the impetus? Right. Was it just continuing to peel back the layers of the onion? Uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, designing a disk controller with having never done a, you know, a tough design. And back then, mm-hmm. there weren't disk controller chips, right? It was, you know, probably 60 or 70 TTL chips. Right. Um, right. Connecting. Right. So I had to learn bus timing and, you know, how the machine executed instructions. And, oh, that was the other thing. Um, DEC provided full service manuals for these machines mm. and detailed schematics and theory of operation. And so it was expected that some percentage of customers would do all the maintenance of their computers uh, down to the chip level. Wow. Right. And so, so whereas IBM kind of did the exact opposite, right? You couldn't buy an IBM, you had to lease it. And they sent out service people, right? Who did, you know, who maintained them. And that was true for most of the mainframe companies for DEC. And then uh, the other similar companies, uh, Data General and uh, Naked Mini and a few others, you know, they all provided enough service information that a competent um, EE um, you know, could actually maintain these machines. So I actually did repair work on the PDP-8 as well. Okay. And so that meant I was getting into you know, the partitioning of the computer into different sections and actually, you know, like, hey, it doesn't add correctly anymore, Mm -hmm. right? And the way you would nail it as that specific thing is DEC made diagnostic programs on paper tape, right? And you would load them into memory. And if memory worked, the program would then run and maybe indicate, you know, hey, you know, I'm trying to do this operation and it doesn't work. And then what you could do is you could write little five or ten line programs and button them in from the front panel after you hand assemble them Mm -hmm. and then exercise a specific instruction and say, okay, I've got this operand here and this one here and it's doing this instruction and the result is wrong, right? Right. And you stick that in a loop and then you go in with an oscilloscope and you trace out the circuit while it's cycling that one faulty instruction. Right. Right. Or that one failing memory address or whatever. Right. Right. So, yeah. So anyway, um, we, we are really miles away from what you <laughs> wanted to interview me oh, about. Oh, no. I think, I um, think you've actually uh, uh, intuitively gone the direction of, uh, that, that I'd like to. But yeah. No, let's keep, okay. let's keep going through your, your okay, journey. Fine. Okay, fine. Well, do you want me to keep it at the, at this level of detail and pace? Sure, that that's great. I'll go uh, as okay. long as you'll as you'll stay on. So, <laughs> well, we may be here for a few hours before we get to Lutz. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, we'll have to do a part two if, if that's the case. Well, actually, you can just carve, the, you know, if we go too long, make it into two episodes or whatever. Right. Okay, so so I did basically, um, so this was most, this started off as a summer job, but I ended up doing, again, after school work for this researcher. And so for about two years, I was doing uh, programming in the evening and building a disk drive controller and, you know, learning about the internals of PDP-8s. Um, and that continued up until um, around 1976, so two years later, when uh, that researcher changed from one hospital to another, and I followed him, and he, he said, what are we going to get? Are we going to get a PDP-8, or do you want to try one of these newfangled PDP-11s? <laughs> And the PDP-8 was what I knew. And I said, well, I really know this one, but if you don't mind me taking time coming up to speed, let's go for a PDP-11. Right. Now, the PDP-11s had been around all through this time, um, but we couldn't, well, the doctor couldn't afford them. Um, but now he had more research money. And so we got uh, probably one of the first uh, PDP-1134s. So... Um, you know, there were four or five models before this, um, and I won't go through the models, but they basically all execute almost the same instruction set. That is, there were different ways that they implemented mm. the execution of the instruction set, and there were little nooks and corners in the instruction set where, because the ISA wasn't nailed down in concrete you could get situations where a PDP-10 and a PDP-20, PDP-1110 or a PDP-1120 might execute an instruction that you would never normally write, right? But they would execute it differently. And so there were, you know, a set of, you know, different little tests you could do to figure out what machine you were running on. Ah, I see. Right. Okay, so you know some of I think the earliest machines were just strict um, pile of gates type decode the instruction and run it type stuff. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the PDP eleven thirty four, it was a microcoded machine. Okay. Okay, so microcoded machines, and this is actually worth doing because um, this actually moves into a lot of other stuff in that time frame. So from the late 60s onwards, there was a chip made initially by Fairchild called the 74181. And it is a 4-bit ALU with an internal 4-bit carry chain and carry in and carry out that let you put multiple of these 74181s side by side right, to build um, arbitrary width arithmetic paths. Mm. Right, and so for a PDP-8, there would be three of those chips side by side. For a PDP-11, there'd be four of them. And when eventually you get to the VAX 11780, which was DEC's first 32-bit computer, mm -hmm. there's eight of them. Right, and so that that's an ALU-only chip, um, but it also introduced. Um, Special, uh, 
So basically, the 7400 series is mostly just building block chips, but there are a few very um, function-specific stuff. And so one of the things the 74181 ALU chip did was it didn't just generate carry, carry in and carry out. It also had uh, additional pins called generate and propagate. Okay. And generate and propagate are a fast analysis of the operands and the carry logic that bypasses the ripple process of rippling carry from one bit to the next. Right. It's a, it, it doesn't create an answer, but it cr in broadside, so very, very quickly, can say if the four-bit operation that that chip is doing, if there's a carry-in, it always will generate a carry-out. Ah, okay. So, so, sorry, regardless of the carry-in, right. it'll always generate a carry-out. So that's a generate. Mm -hmm. right? So the generate pin of a 181 says, I know I'm going to generate a carry no matter what the carry-in is. Mm -hmm. right? The propagate signal coming out of a 74181 says, I will propagate a carry if there's a carry-in. Gotcha. So that means outside of the 181, you can look at the, the signal you're providing to the carry-in pin and the propagate signal and the generate signal that are calculated independent of the actual calculating the add or the subtract. Right. And you can pre-calculate pre or concurrently calculate the carry into the next four bits. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So... So that lets you get a very fast um, carry in a across four bits. Right. If you're putting four of those chips together, Fairchild designed a part called the 74182, and it had generate and propagate inputs that would come from all four of those chips and look at the carry-in at the very beginning of a 16-bit thing, and it would generate a, a generate and propagate across all 16 bits. Oh, okay, right. Very fast, mm -hmm. right? And so you built, so if you're, depending on the size of the process you're building, you built a tree of these 182 chips, right? And one, so the 181s are doing the arithmetic, having to deal with actual carry propagates, going, you know, carry ripples through the, uh, Arithmetic, arithmetic path, right. but you've got these generate propagate signals that are predicting, right, ahead of stuff. Right. So the domain of adding two numbers in two's complement or one's complement, for that matter, has been an area of research for decades. Right. And so if you go look at how do you add two numbers together, right. There's the simplest stuff at one end, which is you add the first two bits and you look at the, you know, is it a carry the one problem? Right. 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 And then you do the next two bits and then the next two bits and the next, you know, two, well, one bit, two operands, right? Right. And you keep doing that, right? Right. Then you have things like the generate propagate tree. But that isn't the fastest way to go. Right. There are other things. There's things called carry select adders, where you calculate both answers concurrently, one with carry in and one without carry in, and then you use the, the carry in signal to drive a mux to select between the two answers. Right. 
and you still use those uh, generate propagate 182s to control a carry select data. Right. Uh, it has the overhead of muxes. It has the bonus that it's faster. Right. I love I love examples, right. even if they are, um, you know, not not the ultimate optimization of something like the generate and propagate, because they make it abundantly clear that uh, a big part of performance improvements is understanding uh, what dependencies do exist and what things are false dependencies, right? And if you can look at something right. that's a false dependency and say, oh, we can actually do this at the same time, then right. sometimes you get yeah. the incremental speed up, sometimes you get, you know, really big performance changes. Right, yeah. So, in fact, you know, as your adders get bigger, this generate propagate stuff actually improves performance uh, on an exponential curve, mm -hmm. right? Because it, you, you end up, I mean, if you were doing a 64-bit add, you're doing it in the same time that it takes a five bit ad to to occur right right because most of most of the stuff that takes time is now it's the generate propagates because all the other stuff runs sort of concurrently right right um so we actually see some of this um in dsp mm -hmm. for why fpgas dominate the very high end of the DSP marketplace. So I'm going to take a little side trip to expand on to expand on this thought. So one of the most common DSP functions that is insanely computationally heavy is digital filters. Mm. And and but they're simple, right? They're simple. You take a vector of coefficients and a vector of data and you multiply each element of the of the data vector by the appropriate coefficient mm -hmm. right and the set of coefficients will basically um, and so so it's actually that the term is sum of products mm -hmm. you may have heard that term so the product is the multiplier of the coefficient by the operand repeated by n different elements. Right. So if you so if you look at a DSP chip, right, anything from Texas Instruments or analog devices for that matter, right? Those DSP chips have vector instructions mm -hmm. where you point at the coefficient array and the data array which might have come in from an A to D converter or it might be a scan line from a video image or whatever. And then it, as fast as possible, fetches two operands at once, multiplies them together, and adds the result. Mm. So if you start with two 16-bit operands, you multiply them together, the worst case is a 32-bit result. Right. If you add two of those together, the worst case thing is 33 bits. Right. If both of those 32-bit numbers were near max, right. Right, you'll end up with a 33-bit result. You need so you need one extra bit if you're only adding two of them. If you add four of them, you need one more bit. If you have eight of them, you need one more bit. Mm -hmm. Sixteen, thirty-two. So depending how many elements you're adding together, you need more bits in that accumulator. Right. Right. So now we look at where does it make sense of how big should that accumulator be, and that in fact will limit how big the array can be. Mm -hmm before you have to do something special. Right. Right. So if you're going to do, let's say, add 4,096, well, multiply 4,096 
operands with 4096 coefficients, right? If that's what you want to do, then your accumulator needs 12 extra bits. Right. Right? So it'll be 32 bits plus 12. Mm-hmm. And if if you're doing floating point as a way to avoid doing that, right? Of needing extra bits, then you have to consider whether you're really doing the arithmetic you think you're doing because you're going to start throwing away all your low order bits because whether you add them or multiply them or whatever, they're going to get pushed out by all the other arithmetic that you're doing. Right. 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 So there's a balance of when does, well, first of all, floating point typically is massively slower than integer. Mm -hmm. Right. Typically except for some chips where they just throw an insane amount of hardware at it and they bring floating point not up to the performance of, of pure integer, but maybe a factor of three to five times slower. Right. It depends on the processor and how much silicon you want to throw at it. Okay, so that's how DSP is done in a DSP processor mm-hmm. for a common task, which is... a what I've described to you has a name. It's called an FIR filter, mm-hmm. right? So, and it's it's finite impulse response. And I could go into what that means, but it's irrelevant to this discussion. Right. <laughs> What's important is that if I have a, let's say I have a data vector of 1,024 elements, right? Then I've got to do 1,024 multiplies mm-hmm. and 1,023 adds. Right. Right, And so that's going to take me, even if I overlap the adds over the multiplies, and the, the multiply accumulate section always does that, mm-hmm. right? You're up for approximately 1,024 system cycles. Right. Plus, plus, you've got to fetch 2,048 things out of memory. Right. Right. And so if you look at DSP chips you will find that different regions of memory can be accessed concurrently, Mm -hmm. right? So in something like a TMS 320-something-something-something, you might find that the on-chip memory, which might be a quarter of a megabyte, is broken up into four blocks, right, of 128K, and the processor can fetch four operands in one clock. Right, right. Right? So that lets them, you know, have two pointers, both fetching one from the operand list, one from the coefficient list, pushing them through the multiplier, into the adder, into the accumulator, and then keep doing that. Mm -hmm. It still takes order N. Right. Right? It takes 1,024 cycles. How would you ever improve that? And then along comes FPGAs. And FPGAs say, I've got 1,024 operations. I can do the first multiply and accumulate and the second multiply accumulate. Mm -hmm. I can do them concurrently and store the result if I can fetch enough operands. Right. Right. And some of the DSP chips will do that too. Some of them have dual multiply accumulators, right? But there's a limit to how many they have, right? right? In an FPGA, 
there are FPGAs that have tens of thousands of multiplier accumulators in them. Mm -hmm. That's current technology. The early stuff, they were measured in, in tens to low hundreds. But even so, let's say you've got a chip. Let's say you've got a chip that has 1,024 multipliers. Right? You can fetch, if you, lay it, if you set things up right, maybe you can fetch all 1,024 coefficients all at once. Mm -hmm. And you can take your data that was coming from an A to D converter, have that going through a shift register that is word-wide. Right. And when all 1,024 words are in exactly the right place, fire off all 1,024 multipliers all at once. Right. And you get 1,024 multipliers in one cycle. Mm -hmm. And you combine the results of two of those multipliers. Right. So you actually don't care about the intermediate ads, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to store them. All you want is to know the results. So you have 512 adders. Right that combine two different multipliers, mm -hmm. which on a DSP chip would have been two consecutive multipliers. On the FPGA, it's a pair of concurrent multipliers, and you get 512 additions, right. which all happen in one cycle. Right. You follow those 512 adders by 128 adders, mm -hmm followed by 64, 32, whatever, you end up with about 11 stages deep. Right. Right. And so in 11 clock cycles, plus the one clock to do all the multiplies, you have the result of 1,024 multiplies and 1,024 adds. You have it in 11 clocks. Right. But each of those stages was only used for one eleventh of that time. Right. So, take that data that was in that shift register and shift it one position and now do another 1,024 multiplies. Right. And have those results marching behind mm -hmm. down through that adder tree. Right. Right. You've got a pipeline so situation going. Now you've got, you've got something that took 1,024 clocks. Right. Right to fill the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So that's your startup latency. Right. But after you've paid that latency of 1,024 clocks, which is a millisecond, right. you're now delivering a result every single right. clock. Every cycle, yep. So now, so now, so here's how an FIR filter works. You set up the coefficients to be a pattern that you're looking for, right? and you set up your data is streaming, and it's somewhere in this data is the pattern I want to find. Right. And now every, now in a single clock cycle, whereas a DSP chip, it, couldn't, it will take 1,024 clocks mm -hmm. before you can shift the shift register once. In the FPGA, you shift it every clock. Right. So the FPGA is running 1,024 times faster than a DSP chip. Mm. And they both had the same startup latency, right? right? They both couldn't start until you had your first 1,024 data items. But the DSP chip won't, after it's shifted everything one position, it's another 1,024 cycles until you get an answer. Right. The FPGA, it's one clock because they were coming down through 
the pipeline of adders. So could the the DSP chip could, in theory, also have 1,024 multiply and then the add tree as well, right? It's just that most of the time they, they do not, and there's no the, you couldn't control expanding it or, or contracting it as you needed, right? You, you, you couldn't make it application-specific, right. and it wouldn't be able to do anything else. Right, right. Right? And it would be... It would... It would instead of being the relatively cheap price that a DSP chip is, mm -hmm. which might be in the $10 to $12, it might end up being like these high-end FPGAs, right. which are two to $3,000. Right. But for the FPGA, if what you really needed was that 1,024-position FIR filter mm -hmm. running at 100 megahertz, delivering a new result every 10 nanoseconds... Right, so every ten nanoseconds, it does a thousand twenty-four multiplies and a thousand twenty-three adds, and delivers a result. Right? right, that FPGA might cost you a few thousand dollars. Right, right, maybe I, I, I don't know what the current prices are. Maybe maybe it's a few hundred dollars. It doesn't matter. Right, the point is, no amount of banging on the side of your DSP right. chip will hit that performance target. Right. Right, and the cool thing for the FPGA is, if you only need to do that until the radar says I've now found the target, now switch from search mode to tracking mode. Right, that's load a different bitstream mm -hmm. and now track the target that you found with that FIR filter. Mm -hmm. Right, or now go into an image recognition algorithm or you know what whatever else right by the way there, there is of course a two-dimensional version so what i've described is a single dimensional fir right there are two-dimensional firs which get applied to images mm -hmm. and do things like edge sharpening and blurring or feature recognition etc right the, the the fir filter is a is a workhorse of the ds of the dsp domain right which covers image audio, radar, and, you know, almost, you know, almost everywhere where you're dealing with real-world signals, right. right, other than on and off, right, there are DSP algorithms often involved. Right, right. right? So, um, and, you know, I mean, an FIR filter can also, you know, boost the bass and trim the treble or, right. or whatever else. I mean it's it's a general perp it's a general purpose algorithm and it's it's functionally easy to implement but it is computationally heavy mm -hmm. right? right and again it's right the example of looking at a dsp chip which is inherently sequential mm -hmm. and the fpga which offers but doesn't enforce a parallel solution right Right. If you're working only with DSP chips, that parallel tree-based solution just never occurs to you because it's not part of the architecture. For the FPGA, it takes a while to reshape into thinking in terms of the extreme parallelism mm. that FPGAs are capable mm -hmm. of. Right. But that's the, the reason that you know high-end communication systems, satellite communications wireless g3 um, next generation uh, tv distribution 
FPGAs are used in all of these systems because they can implement these highly parallel um, solutions and you don't have to commit to a custom chip, which when they go and change the standard, will now all be unusable. Right, right, absolutely. Right? I definitely heard For the that. FPGA, <laughs> yeah, yeah. When the, when the FPGA, you know, when the algorithm changes or the standard changes, the FPGA says, well, okay, send me a new bit stream. Right, right, exactly. Right. So, uh, an, an interesting view of, you know, Understanding your algorithms, mm-hmm. right, is is really important. Uh, you know, the the when you want to do optimization, I generally say look at your algorithms first before you start looking at boosting the clock speed, or throwing more chips at it, or putting a water cooler on it and overclocking right. it. Right, right. Before you do those things, go, go look at your algorithm and see if there's a better way. Right. Um, in a very well, I won't say cynical, but I'm, I'm, it's it's cynical. I've 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 been of the general impression that when someone uses floating point for an algorithm, mm-hmm. they don't understand their algorithm. Mm. Right, floating point is the crutch for not knowing what's going on in your data. Mm. Right, if you know what you're if you really understand what your data looks like and how you're manipulating it at each stage, for most applications, not all, but for most applications, there is a pure integer solution or at worst, an integer solution with an invisible binary point somewhere. Right. 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 Breaking it into the integer part and the fractional part of a, of a binary number. Right. Right. And I hope you noticed uh, I was very explicit that it's not the decimal point. Right, right. <laughs> I, 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 I get angry when people refer to uh, that as a decimal point when they're looking at binary or octal or hex data. Right. Um, the term that... And th- by the way, th- all of this, this comes from when I worked at AMD where I was designing these types of chips. Uh that is the bit slice products and the risk CPUs. Right. Um, I resolved that by giving it a, my, my generic name is the radix point. Okay. Yep. So rather than the decimal point uh, for whatever radix you're working, whether it's decimal, hex, octal, or binary, that, that dot is the uh, radix point. Right. And, and right. then I, and then, and then I get less frustrated and angry. Right. Well, to encourage okay. you to, to continue listening to the podcast after, after this episode, I'll try to, uh, ensure that, that other guests as well adhere to, to, uh, to that practice. <laughs> but you, you mentioned AMD, right? And, and this is kind of, I guess, fast forwarding a few years from, uh, mm-hmm. where, sure. where we last left you. But I think, uh, you joined AMD in, uh, 1985. Is that right? That's, that's correct. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, five that's about we've, ju- we've jumped over about six or seven years there okay and, and that's fine we we could do it later or not do it it doesn't matter um you you did ask you, uh, on the notes that you gave me that you know how much planning was there and so let me at least talk a little bit about that because yeah please do uh yeah you know, one of the things i guess i would say permeates my my approach to stuff is planning 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I ended up in a department as a manager of product planning at AMD right. and then later at Xilinx. But my planning stuff dated back six years before I ended up at AMD, right? So the, we, I'm, I'm going to jump us back to that 74181. Okay. I'm going to jump over everything else that's relevant, but I'm going to come back to the 181. That approach to building the ALU as a slice of four bits of what is a larger data path, mm-hmm. that ended up getting a name called Bit Slice. Okay. And its origin was, and I don't remember who had it first, but it was either Intel had a two-bit slice ALU or monolithic memories had a four-bit slice ALU, right? And these were more than the 74181. They added the register file. Mm. So rather than having the, the, the two operands that feed into the ALU being in external chips, right. the, um, the bit slice processors, which were basically a 181 with a register file, right? Where there was a two-bit version uh, called the 3002, I think, from Intel. Mm-hmm. And then there was a 6701, I think, was the part number from monolithic memories. Okay. And it was a four-bit slice. And the ALUs in both of them were not as good as the 74181. Okay. Right. But they did do add, subtract, and or XOR, shift left and shift right by one bit. And actually, the shift left and shift right meant you needed additional communication bits, mm, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you're only doing add and subtract, you just need a carry borrow line. Right. But for shift, for shift in the shift left, you can use the carry chain. But for shift right, you need something that's pointing the other way. Right. Right. Okay. So, you know, that added an additional um, across the ALU type uh, control signal. Mm-hmm. Um, so MMI wasn't particularly successful with with their bit slice ALUs. I haven't ever heard of a system that was built with them. But one of the managers at MMI moved, and this would have been probably in the mid-70s, moved from MMI to AMD and at AMD, the 2901 was born. Mm. And the 2901 was far and away the most successful bit slice processor. And it was a 4-bit ALU that was more functional than the 6701. It had a better register file. It had generate and propagate lines that I don't think the 6701 had. So you could actually use these bit slice chips from AMD with the Fairchild 182 chip, mm, mm-hmm. right, and build and take advantage of that generate propagate logic, right, um, and so lots of computers, both mini computers and mainframe computers, were built with 2901s. Mm. So, for instance, the Data General answer to the DEC VAC. So when DEC went from the PDP 11 to the VAX 11780 which happened in 1978, I believe, right? That was still using 141s. Um, Data General had a competitive machine called the MV8000, and it used 2901s from AMD. 
and then you started seeing 2901s in mainframe computers from pretty much everyone except IBM, right? And mini computers, so later models of uh, PDP-11s probably used 2901s. And there were a lot of other companies that looked at the success of Data General and DEC and were lesser players, uh, but still building CPUs. And then in the early 80s through to the late 80s, there was a new range of computers built by a bunch of startups, which were called mini supercomputers. So they weren't mm. quite the Cray or CDC, you know, 6700 type, you know, real super duper computers, but they were machines that were, they were bigger than the biggest mini computers, mm-hmm. um, but they could handle workloads and compute um, that, you know, typically used risk type instruction sets and bit slice um, ALUs. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, how did I get down on that path? Don't remember. <laughs> oh, other than to say, you know, the the the, the style of building building stuff got more integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I was aware of all this stuff in the late seventies, right? And so by this time, I'd already designed my first chip. I hadn't mentioned that. My I designed my first chip in nineteen seventy-two when I was twelve years old. Okay. Um, at that time frame, Fairchild and National Semiconductor actually had factories in Australia, mm-hmm. in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, only only an hour's travel by public transport for a 12-year-old. Um, and those, they were primarily, they were test and packaging. Okay. Right. So, so the, the chips came in as wafers, already fully processed. They were then tested, diced, and packaged. Mm-hmm. Right. Some going to export and some feeding into the minuscule Australian electronics industry. Right. So I went and visited one of, just as I went off to Honeywell's timeshare building, I went off to Fairchild, right, and asked for a tour. And so I got a tour by one of the sales engineers through the manufacturing floor. And it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly big facility. Um, You know, they basically, you know, there was probably less than 100 people working there. Mm -hmm. But I got to see all that. And, you know, I asked about, you know, so... How do these you know, chips get designed? And the guy says, well, some people in America in the product, pl- and this is Fairchild, right? Yeah. They, 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 they look at the features that people want or the salespeople tell them these are the features that customers are asking for and then they then plan the products. And then, and this guy really didn't understand how that then turned into a product. Right. So then, you know, <laughs> stuff happens and the chips end up here, and here the exciting stuff happens. We we cut them up, we test them, and we package them. Right. Right. So he skipped over the whole, you know, design <laughs> design the chip part because right. he really didn't have any handle on that. And he just talked about what was locally there. I said, so what if I had an idea for a chip because I keep wanting this function, but it isn't in the seven four hundred catalog? And he says, mm-hmm. I, I have no idea. Yeah, I said, well, if I if I wrote a data sheet for the chip, right, 
would you send it to those people? And he said, sure. <laughs> and so I, so I wrote a data sheet yep. and, and laid out the pinout and the logic function and the timing table. So basically, all the stuff, you know, and I typed it up on a typewriter. I didn't have a word processor back then, right? Um, and I gave him this four or five sheet data sheet for a, a chip that would have something that I was using often, which was an RS latch, which was a pair of cross-coupled NAND gates, mm -hmm. which is used, among other things, to debounce switches. Right. Right. So that you get nice, clean transitions. I said, mm -hmm. you've got all these pins. You could have four of these in one chip rather than me going through all of these 7400 NAND chips. Right. You could have four of these circuits in one package. Mm -hmm. That chip is still built today <laughs> and it's called the 74LS279. So. So did, that was my first product planning experience. Did you get any right. uh, attribution in in this process at all? N n never, <laughs> never. But 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 the two. But I claim, and there's no one there's no one still alive to deny it. Um, I claim I designed the seven four LS two seventy nine. Well, that is okay. uh, probably not something many twelve year olds can say. <laughs> yeah. Well. And and or or believe at this point, right? right? It doesn't matter. The point was it got me into understanding, right? Right. The process of you need a data sheet, you need mm. to have thought through the functionality, you need to make sure it doesn't need more pins than the package has, right? Right. Etc. Etc. Et okay. So late seventies. I'm now programming PDP elevens. I've got a real job actually working in Fortran in a company. We're going to skip over all of that unless you want to go back at it later. <laughs> and I'm looking at what are people using for building processes? And the answer is they're using AMD 2901s, mm. right? And so I start learning about bit slice, Right? I mean, I already had a handle on it from using the 181s, but now I'm looking at what replaced them, mm -hmm. right? And I'm looking at how it changed. I said, damn it, I want to end up somewhere near that. So right. the only company I want to work for is AMD. Right. Right? So, that's, so I want to work for AMD. I figured there was no way I'd get to work on BitSlice directly. So my goal was... How do I at least get to make coffee for those guys? Right, <laughs> right. That 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 was my that was my plan. Mm -hmm. Get to make coffee for the guys who worked in the bit slice department, so I could talk with them. Right. right? From Australia, the closest I could get to AMD in Australia was AMD had a distributor. So AMD didn't have any physical presence in Australia at all, but there was a distributor called R and D Electronics. And they distributed AMD's parts. They also handled Intersil, Monolithic Memories, Zilog, and a bunch of other companies. So in Australia, the common thing is, is since none of the silicon companies had a presence in the 
country because Fairchild and Nat Semi's packaging division had decamped years ago mm-hmm. due to some political silliness, <laughs> right? So Australia had no silicon industry whatsoever. But there was a bunch of distributor companies. These days, you'd talk about DigiKey and Mauser, etc., right? So these are much smaller versions of that for the much smaller Australian market. And they represented multiple product lines, typically trying to avoid conflicts of interest, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at the product line from AMD, Mono Memories, Intercell, Varro, and a few, and Zilog, the, there's almost no overlap between them, right? And so they were presented to customers if a customer says, I want this, we would look through our catalog of parts, right? And say, well, we have a solution for you and it uses these MMI parts or whatever. So anyway, in Australia, all of these distributor type companies were just basically sales sales and shipping organizations Mm -hmm. and a little bit of marketing. The equivalent in the US though, they typically had something called a, a... applications engineer Mm -hmm. in fact if you look at a company like amd it actually has two categories of application engineers internal and external Mm -hmm. so the internal application engineers answer the telephones solve problems write the data sheets probably write the application notes and they take the calls from the other application engineers who are out in the field right who are called field application engineers. Right. Right. Big surprise. So a field application engineer who has a problem with a specific customer would work with the customer to refine the problem description, right, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. and then approach the applications department inside the company to have someone take ownership of it and either resolve it using the internal resources, which might include going off and talking to the chip designer. Right. Right? Depends what was, you know, what what level of skill is needed to resolve the issue. So in the US, the distributors all had application engineers, right? Who are external. Mm-hmm. Not all of them worked for AMD. Right? Or Intercell or whatever, right? They actually were they worked for the distributor. So you had two categories of external FAEs. You have field application engineers who are distributor FAEs, uh, second-class citizens, and then you have first-class citizens who worked in AMD's sales offices spread across mm. the country, Okay. right? Who primarily only ever talked to the really big customers. Right. Right? For all the little customers, they sent them off to the distributors. Right. Right? But... Once a year, AMD held their international sales conference and FAE conference, and they they upgraded the the distributor FAEs, and they were invited as well. And so they had a conference that would run for a week, right? And they had all the distributor FAEs, all the company external FAEs, and all the internal application engineers all in a huge conference facility, in AMD's case, usually in Hawaii, Um, and then factory people from the engineering department would make presentations 
about what is in the pipeline mm, mm-hmm. and what to look out for in terms of opportunities plus marketing and salespeople would say here's the products we already have right here's how you go about you know here's the types of customers you look for here's the products you offer them right so it's a sales and engineering conference right amd had them once a year that included external faes that work for distributors in australia none of the distributors had any faes Mm. so i approached australia's AMD distributor, a company called R&D Electronics, and said, have you considered having an application engineer across all your products? And the owner of the company said, we've been thinking about it, but we didn't know who we'd go get. Right. And I put my (laughs) hand up and said, I'll do it. I would love to be Australia's first field application engineer. Right. And so that happened at the end of 1979. I joined as an FAE. And while my primary goal was eventually to make coffee for the bit slice people in California, the first thing was to become competent as an application engineer. Mm -hmm. And I did it across all of that company's product lines that it represented right so i didn't just become an amd fae i became an mmi fae and i became an intercell fae and several other companies mm-hmm. the mmi fae position turned out to be on in the short term the most useful because i got to see pals before they got released mm. and so i was basically training people how to use PALS when they first became available from MMI. Right. right? Which was a wonderful experience. Right? Wonderful. But I also became, you know, an FAE for AMD. And so within my first year of joining this company, they sent me to America. Awesome. Right. Right. And I got to attend the application you know, the, the, the sales and application conference. And I got to meet, it wasn't my ex- expectation, but I actually got to meet some of the people who were the actual chip designers mm-hmm. in the BitSlice group. Right. And, and had interesting discussions. So I stayed with that company for about three years, attending conferences on an annual basis and building up my contacts mm-hmm. at AMD and at MMI, and at Intercell, and various other companies, right? And I had a, a load of fun in Australia, um, you know, talking to lots of lots of people, lots of different engineering teams, all with different problems. So I got to see a very broad range of electronic design mm-hmm. and different levels of competence of teams and whatever. Um, Eventually, I left that company and I, because I wanted to actually do some engineering. Right. And I joined a pair of small companies, one after the other, both of which had serious management problems. Okay. And didn't last very long. Uh, and these were Australian companies? Long. Yeah, yeah. These okay. are Australian companies with under 20 employees okay. doing 
primarily S100 based computer mm. uh, stuff, both designing boards and building systems and selling accounting software and business software and that sort of stuff. Um, that didn't last more than a year. So it was basically two companies, six months each, and it was like, this is not for me. Right. Then all through that period, I'd also been um, a lecturer at uh, one of the local universities uh, teaching um, final year uh, system design. So fourth year EE degree uh, students, I was teaching uh, you know, system design and you know, balancing trade-offs and writing low-level code and a little bit of DSP and a little bit of making Ethernet work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So after the two small companies that really didn't suit me, I asked the university if I could become a full-time lecturer. Mm -hmm. And so I hadn't lost sight of wanting to work in BitSlice, but I didn't feel I was quite ready to make the jump. Um, and I didn't actually have any opportunity for that. So I took on a, a role uh, in Australia. The job title was senior lecturer. Um, the US equivalent would be associate professor. Okay. That is responsible for course creation mm -hmm. and syllabus and examination and evaluation, etc. So it was reasonably autonomous, but you know, not professor level, you know, high uh, status. Right, right, fair enough. Right, right. But you know, I I basically created a new um, you know digital course that you know was fun to teach. Unfortunately. When I moved from being a part-time lecturer, where I was just teaching two subjects a week. So all the time that I was being an application engineer, I was also taking off half a day per week to teach at that university. Okay. So they already knew me. Right. And that that company that I was working for was incredibly nice to let me have half a day off a week to teach at the university. They figured I'm training their next generation of customers. Right. Right. Because guess what? The data books that I handed out to, for them to do their assignments, the data books were AMD and MMI and Intercell. Right. Right. So, so it was, you know, there, there was clearly, um, you know, some linkage there. Anyway, um, the politics when I became a full time member of staff was unbearable. Mm. The, 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 the trivial politics between the various academics just drove me nuts right and so about six months in i sent my resume off to the head of applications at amd and said could you please pass this on to someone in the applications department right to see if i could become an amd internal applications engineer mm. so that was my path i figured with my credentials having been a field application engineer in Australia and having multiple years of them seeing me, that it would be pretty easy. Right. Unfortunately, it took three or four resumes being sent because the guy kept throwing them in the trash, <laughs> um, um, which was very sad. But eventually, instead of trashing it, he gave my resume 
to the head of the bit slice group. Oh wow, that the, was a- the product planning, the product planning group for bit slice. Okay, Makes and sense. and so he called me. So you know, long distance phone call. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called me and interviewed me for about an hour. Okay, and I told him about how I had with a bunch of friends of mine. So we've skipped over all of this, but starting in 1980 when I became an employee at this distributor company mm-hmm. I also bought parts at a discount and I bought a pile of bit slice processor chips and all the stuff that goes around it and a bunch of friends and I had actually built a 32-bit mainframe oh wow right so we actually had a, a some very interesting stuff it's not for this discussion but as a as a do I know anything about bit slice the answer was I have a 32-bit mainframe that my friends and I designed and built, and it's four times the performance of DexVax. Right. <laughs> that, I'm sure the interview uh, went, went pretty well after that. Yeah, it did. It re- <laughs> really well. And he said, I'll, we'll probably get back to you. And later that day, I got a call from HR with a job offer. And unfortunately, I just started that semester. I said, so all of this is great. I didn't even care how much they were offering right. me. I, was not, I wasn't going to be making coffee for this group. I would actually become part of that group mm-hmm. as my entrance into AMD. Right. Um, so I just started the semester. I said, I'm going to have to delay by six months. Otherwise, I'm going to be stranding right, a whole class of students. Right. And, they, and they agreed to it. I, you know what? It... I half regret it, but I don't have any. I don't have any guilt of having stranded students. Which, if I'd right. instead jumped at it and stranded those students, I'd probably have felt bad about it for for at least a while. Right. But instead, I, I taught that semester um, and then packed up everything I owned and headed off to America. And so by this time, it's I'm now late 20s and i joined amd not as a junior in that department but one of two uh managers Mm. so there was a guy in in charge of that department and then under him he had slots for two managers and then under those two managers were then the rest of the department okay and so he brought me in as a amd's term was a section manager Mm -hmm. And so I was a section manager in the programmable processes division. Okay. Right. Responsible for, I thought, bit slice products. But it turns out, nah. <laughs> it turns out the department had a secret project that was unannounced to the outside world, which was a risk CPU. Mm. And so they had just finished a round of next generation bit slice parts and rather than doing another round of it they decided for whatever reason that risk made more sense as the next thing that their skill set right so the, the rest of amd was busy copying intel instruction sets right right whereas this group the bit slice group was designing instruction sets mm. Right, and the risk CPU would be designing the instruction set as well, right? So that's where it belonged, at least initially. Right. Um, and so 
they brought me in because of my bit slice experience of actually having built stuff. So bit slice in general, microcoded processes is not risk at all. Mm-hmm. It's CISC, right? right? It's you're building interpreters that are below that implement the assembler language. Right. So would would right? the the bit slice components would they fit into the uh, the CISC processors as like a, a target essentially for the microcode inside the, of the larger very system? Very much. Okay. Yeah. Right. So pretty much all of these bit slice parts were implementing CISC CPUs. Okay. Right. So the bit slice parts are pretty much inherently not driven by assembler. They're driven by micro assembler mm-hmm. code or, or microcode. Right? right. And so you have, you know, a, an instruction that might be 64 bits wide or lot or wider that's controlling all these different microcoded chips concurrently. In fact, the machine that we built in Australia had a microcode instruction that was 128 bits wide, mm. right? And so it was it was controlling a lot of stuff concurrently, which is part of what made it fast, right? Right, right. But it was still cycling around an interpreter loop, interpreting an upper level assembler, right? Um, so, so anyway, I was coming in to work in the risk group, but I'm the guy that doesn't believe in risk, right. <laughs> right? I'm I have immersed myself for at least the last five or six years on CISC type stuff, mm-hmm. and so and this risk group was built from the bit slice group, which was also of CISC architecture origin. Right. So the manager, when he brought me in said, I want you to spend a few weeks going through all of their documents and analyzing it and tell me if we're heading in the wrong direction. Mm. Right? Because I'm coming in as a very solid CISC-type viewpoint and experience of actually building CISC CPUs. Is this risk thing really better? Right. So I worked on it for two weeks went through all the documentation they had, all their estimates of timing, the, the instruction flows, whatever else. And at the end, I said I said to the boss, this is insane, <laughs> right? It's crazy to keep me doing this task. Put me on the risks team. Yeah. This is the future. Wow. Right? And so basically, I became one of the co-architects. I mean, in total, there were eight engineers who architected the 29,000, mm-hmm. right? And everybody contributed. So I wasn't like a lead architect or anything. I was one of a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I had three other engineers under me, which by the way, I'd never had I'd never had reports. Mm. And, and I'm not a great people person. Um, you, you could have so fooled I'm not me. Say, so. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I did my best, but you know, I'm much better at pushing gates than pushing people. Fair enough. Um, so, you know, I did my best. And, you know, I really enjoyed working. We, we really worked more as um, colleagues than as manager mm. and underlings, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, there was, like, for instance, we, uh, myself and one of my underlings wrote the cross-assembler for the 29,000, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
and you know I worked with an, another person on you know, various other tasks right so there was a lot of um, a lot of real work that as a manager I still got my hands totally dirty along with everybody else in the team right in that and, in that two week window though that you were talking about where you kind of uh, became convinced if you will I've I've read quite a bit about the kind of like risk versus risk academic debates more mm-hmm. in that in that time period what yeah. was it that you saw in those two weeks that uh, made you a convert if you will um so one of the things that I carried from my Australian project is when when I convinced a bunch of friends to help me build this machine, which was all done as wire wrap, mm-hmm. um, was I said, I think we need some guiding ideas that are forward-looking, right? Rather than working with what we have, let's predict where something is going and design for that, that target, mm-hmm. right? And I said, among the things that we've seen is that chips get more and more complex. But the other thing is that the cost of memory keeps dropping and the size of memory keeps going up. Mm. Let's use as a guiding principle for this CISC machine that we were building, let's use as a guiding principle that memory is free. So wherever we're making decisions where memory might be involved, don't treat it as a scarce resource. Mm-hmm. Treat it as something that's free. So the fact that the microcode memory was 128 bits wide, not an issue. Mm. The fact that it was a quarter of a mega word deep, when most companies were looking at like a killer word or two killer words, we were doing 256K deep microcode memory, totally outside of any norm. Right. But it let us do things, right? In, in terms of the way we cracked instructions in the interpretive loop, we could just have separate routines for groups of, of instructions that are very, very similar, but would have an overhead to sort out the, the minor differences. We could just, with that much microcode, we just have unique microcode for each one and avoid a branch and a compare, right, as part of the um, uh, decode loop, right. as an example. Um, late in the project, we virtualized it. Okay. So we had vert, we had we had demand paged microcode. Right, because memory is free. Mm-hmm. The register file, the register file was four thousand and ninety six registers. Oh. <laughs> right, and the instructions that the microcode engine could execute could fetch any two registers perform an ALU op mm-hmm. and write back to any third register every clock, mm. right? Because memory's free. Right. I mean, it wasn't, and so we didn't implement everything, right. but we used that as a guiding principle. Mm-hmm. So the memory is free, I brought that with me when I started looking at the AMD project. And the number one thing that people pointed at for risk is because the instructions are so simple, right? You're going to have to have so many more of right. them and memory's expensive. And I said, no, no, it isn't. Right. Memory's free, right? Memory's free. And so that's no longer an issue for risk, 
right? Because in time, right, that memory that you're worried about, you know, how much it costs, it's it's not going to matter, right? Right, right. The performance is going to matter, mm-hmm. right? How fast can I fetch instructions, and with risk? That there were two things. One was that memory is free thing got rid of one of the anti-risk sort of arguments. But the other one, I didn't see it directly. It was um, an education that I got from one of the guys that was... Okay, so by the way, that team of architects on 29,000 at AMD, Mm -hmm. of the eight people, five of them were fresh out of college. Oh, wow. Right? So five of them were, were new grads who hadn't worked anywhere prior to AMD. Mm-hmm. And the rest of them, there was me, a guy from National Semiconductor, and a guy from IBM. Uh, the I, IBM guy had worked on IBM's risk processor okay. that eventually became PowerPC. Mm-hmm. Right? So one of the guys who was fresh out of college educated me on compiler optimizations Mm -hmm. and he was very strong on how because all the instead of having microcode where everything is set in concrete for how each instruction is executed on a risk cpu you can take a step up the um a, a layer out on the onion to the the next layer out so you're not trying to execute single assembler instructions. You're trying to do some algorithmic piece. Right. And there are optimizations you can do. Right? The, the best example is, let's say instruction A has to, has to store to a register. Mm-hmm. And instruction B has to fetch from the same register. Right. And they happen one after the other. Well, in a RISC CPU, maybe that's a direct path. And there is no... You're not touching the register file at all. There's an intermediate register that's otherwise invisible, mm-hmm. right? But lets you over two clocks do something that would have taken three or four clocks and blown away a register along the way, right. which, you know, could have been used, you know, for holding a useful coefficient or something. Mm-hmm. So it was that for the risk CPUs, there were lots of opportunities for optimizations in the compiler. Right that that would help you do a better job um, with the limited resources that the risk CPU provides. And so it really mitigated more of the it basically it allowed finer grain optimizations. Mm-hmm. And I, I really liked that. So it was the finer grain optimizations. It was the argument that memory's expensive, you know, it, it I mean, we, we had benchmarks. We had uh, that same guy had written a GCC uh, backend for the sketched out architecture. The architecture that AMD had for 29,000 was not yet set in concrete. The, the, the broad strokes were done, but the detailed instruction set hadn't been done. Mm-hmm. We, we knew what types of instructions there'd be. We, had, we knew the approximate layout of the bit fields in the instructions. Um, some of that surprisingly is important um, in that you want to be able to take instruction bits 
and route them directly to where they're needed, right. like maybe controlling a MUX or directly going into an ALU to select which ALU function, rather than having to be decoded and then generate a control word, which is a different bit pattern. Right. You, you want to avoid yeah. that. And so some of that is literally the artistry of figuring out the value, the bits of an opcode. Like, so the 29,000 is a 32-bit instruction, eight bits of opcode, and three eight-bit fields, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes two of them are joined to create a 16-bit field. But the eight-bit instruction field, certain of those bits are routed directly to the ALU. Certain bits go, go off other places. But suffice to say, there's a lot of stuff there where you avoid having to put a mux in a critical path right. because you just lay out the, the bit fields. So that was stuff I knew about. And in fact, I was one that did the detailed design, right? The instruction set had already been figured out by other people, but they hadn't yet figured out how does that get mapped to the opcodes, right? Right. And so one of the tasks, I said, it's a tedious job, but I'm willing to do it, right? right. And so I actually figured out the exact bit patterns for every instruction mm-hmm and optimize them so that it would work. In fact, even things like there's fetch two registers and write back to the third. Mm -hmm. Do you really want those three fields to be in some arbitrary combination of three eight-bit fields, or is there an optimal one? And the answer is, well, if I'm going to have 16-bit constants and I want to write them to a register... Mm -hmm then maybe the 16-bit constant should be the bottom 16 bits right. and the write-back register should be the next eight bits and the opcode should be the top eight bits, right? Right. As an yeah. example. This, yeah, the simplest version of this, uh, like just uh, considering where uh, bits are in the instruction uh, that I've experienced at least is, you know, implementing a RISC-V CPU. Mm-hmm. RISC-V, one of the nice things about it is um, arguments are always in the same place. There's lots of different instruction formats, yes. but if there's RS1 and RS2, right, they're always at the same place mm-hmm. in the instruction if right. they're present. Mm-hmm. And that it once you actually try to implement the logic, right, for mm-hmm. a, a CPU, you understand how important that is. Right. But you know, if you're if you haven't done that before, right. then yeah, yeah. It's if not, all you've it's ever done obvious. is used is programmed in assembler that's right. opaque to you and and that what you're describing literally the 29000 does that too right so there mm-hmm. are instructions that only have a destination register there are instructions that have a destination and one operand and and a, and a short immediate right of 8 bits right and then there's instructions which fetch two registers and write back to a third and mm-hmm. because there is a place in the data path where you have to choose between a register being fetched and that short immediate or two registers being fetched and the long immediate, right, the 16-bit immediate, those mean there are muxes somewhere, right? Right. Right, that have to decide, am I taking the bits from the instruction or am I taking the bits that the instruction is indexing into the register file and there's a register file access that is pipelined? So I won't actually get that register for another clock, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of, you know, juggling there, right? And it, it, it wasn't like something I'd knocked out in an afternoon, right? Right. uh, I probably spent two or three weeks designing the, the bit patterns 
for the instruction set. Right. Mm-hmm. So so anyway, um, the, the there was just a bunch of things that I saw in what the twenty nine thousand was capable of doing, and mm-hmm. what I knew it was competing against in CISC would always require multiple instructions and those those interpreted that interpretation process was blocking optimizations that were open to well-written compilers mm-hmm. right and right you know the the it it may surprise some of the listeners that it is if you know what's going on behind the scenes, risk one a hundred percent. Right? Mm-hmm. And you say, Oh, but right. but X eighty six dominates the market. Uh, X eighty six on the package dominates the market. Inside right. both AMD and Intel's X eighty sixes are risk CPUs. Mm-hmm. Right? And they all have a a, a an on the fly translation engine. And caches right. that translate the x86's instructions into um, risk operations. Uh, mm-hmm. AMD calls them ROPS, R-O-P-S, and they then right. go into the ROPS cache, right? And the the actual compute engine is executing from the ROPS cache, running ex- right. running risk instructions, right? Um, right. So you know the the and and some of those are doing optimizations on the fly as well. Although again, there are opportunities in the compiler to help things along. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, where would you like me to talk next? Well, one one of the other things about the uh, I don't know if it was the twenty nine thousand or uh, uh, another uh, chip that you worked on. Um, but we also briefly, I think, in the past, talked about register windows. Um, was that were those on the twenty nine thousand? Yeah, that was on the twenty nine thousand. So okay, it's interesting. I've I've wondered. So the 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 comparison is so there were two there were two processes that used a um, a rolling window of registers mm-hmm. uh, that the uh, execution stream is busy modifying and one way the the term we used and you know you'll have to forgive me a little bit because we're talking 36 37 years ago right so it's been a little while since i worked on this uh, so, right. someone commented to me that as you get up o- <clears throat> As you get older, you talk less about the great things that you'll do in the future, and more about the great things you've done in the past. So, <laughs> so I'm I'm clearly in that um, in the older category, um, and and some of it the, the memory fades because it's back far enough. But um, right. so one of the things that was part of the twenty nine thousands architecture, well before I, uh, so I mean a lot of work had been done before I arrived, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And one of them was that the uh, that there'd be this register window, and so basically, what a register window is is it says that all the registers live in memory, right? Mm-hmm. And there were processes before the twenty nine thousand that did that. The among them uh, was the 
Texas Instruments 9900, which, which dates from the 70s, except it really had all the registers sitting in memory, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of slow, right? Right. The register file in the 29,000, we referred to it as a stack cache. So it's mm. a, and there is, well, that would, for, for the purpose of this discussion, we'll say there's 128 registers. There isn't. There's actually 192. It was okay. originally 256, and we ran out of room. Right. So originally, <laughs> because we had 8-bit fields, right, it was intended mm -hmm. to index into the register file with 256 registers. Well, right. it turns out the chip design guys couldn't, couldn't build the chip um, because there were too many registers. And so okay. something had to go, and, right. and we ended up throwing away 64 registers. And so okay. we have a lower half of 128 registers and the upper half of 64, which used to be 128. Right, mm -hmm. so so there's a negative optimization because we ran <laughs> we ran out of silicon, right, and that then propagated to every member of the family afterwards. Okay, so the hundred twenty. Yeah. So let's talk about half of the register file that was still there. Right, was 128 right. <laughs> registers. Nominally, the stack pointer is a pointer somewhere into those 128 registers. Mm -hmm. And all the registers above that pointer position are parts of the stack that haven't been touched yet or are stale from previous execution. And the mm -hmm. stuff below the stack pointer is active stack frames that we, we plan to look at as we unroll the stack. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the register file, 128 registers, is like a barrel. Right. right. You have a pointer that says, here's where I am in the 128 registers. There's a marker that says, this is the, the first of the valid registers. And so there, up to the stack pointer, is the top of stack with N mm -hmm. registers. And then you have, from there, to you wrap around to that same boundary, boundary pointer, which are the registers that you could use because this cache is sitting there, you just haven't dug deep enough in your subroutines yet. Right. Okay. So when you want to do a subroutine call, you compare the current stack pointer, bottom eight, or bottom seven bits, to the boundary register, bottom seven bits, and you say, do I have enough room to allocate the registers that I need for this function, right? So the compiler optimization already knows I'm passing three parameters plus a return address plus a frame pointer or something, and they're all going to get mm -hmm. pushed on the stack, and then we're going to jump off to the subroutine. So I need seven right. registers. Are seven registers available above the current stack pointer, right? And you look at it right. and says, yes, there are. So you just update the frame register, you update the stack pointer, you put your parameters into the appropriate places in the stack cache, and you go to your subroutine, and it can then do indirect or offset references to the new stack pointer to get its, mm -hmm. its parameters off the stack. 
and if it wants to call another routine, it does the same calling convention. Right. Eventually, if you just keep digging down, right, deeper and deeper into a subroutine call tree, eventually there won't be enough registers. Right. The registers that are furthest away, which are right at that boundary register, but looking at it from going backwards, those are the ones you're not going to want to look at for a long time until you unwind Mm -hmm. the stack. So you flush them out to real memory. Right. Okay. That's called a spill, right? And you just move the reference pointer, right, to however many registers you threw away. And right. now magically you've got more stack, right? So the right. cost, the cost of doing a spill, which is when you're digging down through the subroutine tree, right, is the cost of writing the registers out and updating the pointer. And mm-hmm. you have a choice when you design your compiler or when you design the ABI for the processor of whether the spill is only as many as you need or spill everything, not a good choice, or maybe spill half, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't remember, we, we certainly didn't spill only as many as you need and we certainly didn't spill everything. I think the default was you just always spill half, right? Gotcha. So you spilled 64 registers out to memory and then you continued executing code. Now, eventually mm-hmm. you start executing return instructions and eventually the frame pointer is pointing back before the reference pointer, which says mm-hmm. the registers you want aren't in the cache, right? Right. And so now you do a fill. Right, so you're doing mm-hmm. you're unwinding the stack core. So now you do a fill, and the fill is bring in sixty four registers. Right. Right. And so nominally the stack pointer is always in the middle with sixty four registers behind it and sixty four registers after it. And so mm-hmm. again, we ran and when I say we, I mean not me, we ran benchmarks and code traces right, to figure out that whatever it was that the spill and fill quantities were, they basically meant that a very high percentage of subroutine calls triggered neither a spill or a fill, mm-hmm. right? So you right. had something like you know, 95, 97% of subroutine calls didn't trigger a spill or a fill. So the efficiency right. was outstanding. Mm-hmm. Right, so you always had the 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 top of stack, right, which had all your subroutine parameters or return values or whatever, are just always available in the fastest memory the chip has, right, right. The, the register file. And, and so that's that's a uh, uh, an optimization versus like some other uh, um, register window strategies but just to like compare to not using register windows right if you have uh registers you need to preserve across a a subroutine call you have to have a you know a function prologue or or, or, um Mm -hmm. prelude where you're gonna push it onto the stack and so one of the things you're saving is all of those operations where you're manually pushing and popping things to to stack right in fact you know if you look at x86 code Right mm-hmm. uh, or ARM code for that matter, because ARM has this, has a similar problem. You'll see mm-hmm. 
uh, particularly for things that might end up being interrupt service routines, right, is they end up having to flush all the registers, right, right. Out, out to memory because you need a working set. On the mm-hmm. 29,000, you say, my interrupt service routine needs X registers. Can I just move the pointer and, and give it X of its own registers? And when we're done, we'll re- return them all. So absolute register numbers, they, they don't exist in 29,000 code. They're all, right. what is the offset from the top of stack? And the top of stack is always on chip, not out somewhere in, in main memory. Right. right. It's, it's somewhere within those 128 registers. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I did some uh, analysis of, uh, I, I basically heard about register windows from learning about Spark. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at, you know, x86 and ARM and now RISC V. And I was curious uh, why none of these, you know, newer, if you will, right? I mean, mm-hmm. some of these trace back to before, um, but why they don't use register windows. And I, and I did a bunch of reading. I ended up writing a blog post that kind of like went through some of the trade-offs. But I know uh, I had briefly mentioned to you seeing a comment about uh, Spark register windows were perhaps not implemented quite as efficiently. Do you think right. that contributed to register windows not being included in subsequent architectures? Mm, I don't think so. I think that okay. the... That the Spark decision, so so the, so Spark also has register windows that spill and fill. The difference mm-hmm. between it and twenty nine thousand is the pool of registers is smaller, and the allocation size is fixed. Mm. So it it's it's when you enter a subroutine, the movement of the frame register uh, is always by the same amount. Whereas for 29,000, mm-hmm. it's optimized on a per-function basis. So if you only need three registers, you only consume three registers, whereas Spark always consumes 12 or something. I, I don't remember the number, but whatever mm-hmm. it is, because it always consumes a fixed amount, it's always over-allocating, which means it's spilling and filling far more often than 29,000. And mm. I would guess that the reason is because of the layout of their instruction didn't give them the flexibility of having a field as part of the call instruction that said, here's how oh. many uh, registers I need to allocate. Right. Right. So in the 29,000, uh, part of that uh, subroutine call is the, is the frame increment. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, and, you know, that was because of the way that uh, those bit fields were laid out was, you know, we had, we had an 8-bit um, immediate field that you weren't needing for the subroutine call. Right. Or actually it was the, how was it done? It was actually not the, it was not the immediate field. It was the destination register field. Right, okay. right, right, the right. one that was mm-hmm. always available, and that left you with a 16-bit uh, relative offset for how far away the function could be. So you could mm-hmm. be up to 64K words of, of offset, right, which was split right. 32K before and after the current PC value. And if you needed more than that, there was a different call instruction that said call indirect through a register. Mm. Right, which would have a 32-bit absolute address 
um, or a 32-bit offset from the current program counter. Right. Right. Makes sense. So, so you know, I, I suspect it was just a function of how the bits were laid out. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there, there was also an overhead that it required an extra 8-bit adder in a somewhat critical uh, register uh, access path. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, it, it wasn't without its own costs in, in the silicon implementation. Right. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. From a, uh, uh, maybe as a, a kind of uh, um, wrap up of, of where we've gone so far, and we haven't even gotten to uh, yeah. Xilinx and FPJs and everything. So I am absolutely going to have to have you back. But uh, from your time at AMD, um, maybe specifically on the 29,000 or other work that you did there, um, was there any other kind of like, um, uh, lessons or takeaways that you had um both from the perspective of of things we've been talking about of you know specific to um processor architecture um but also just you know general organizational takeaways as well uh oh i have i have a career worth of organizational takeaways (laughs) um be really careful picking your boss um and when you do make sure that that what you're doing matches your boss's goals mm. right um you 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 need to be on their team and working to meet whatever their goals are um so that's that's real important and Un- understand right. what the hot buttons are of of whoever is managing you and make sure you don't don't do anything to shoot yourself in the foot um, right. I did that a few too many times. Um, if you have the ability of getting a boss who really understands, I, I, I guess I've had this attitude that um, the function of a manager slash boss is to protect the people below from the crap above. Mm. Right. So you have upper le- people above your boss's level who are busy jerking chains and changing schedules and, you know, doing things that would really upset what the team is trying to get done on what is probably a tight schedule. And right. so a good boss insulates the workers, the worker bees, from from the politics that are really shouldn't affect them, right? Right. And I've had bosses both who do that well and don't do it well at all and, right and it 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 really affects you um i have a a fairly complex um i guess architectural uh observation not mine this is when, when i joined amd's so amd's product planning uh, and i know it's in your question list which is how different was AMD product planning from Xilinx. And there's mm-hmm. an Australian term, which I think we should propagate to America. It's like okay. chalk and cheese. Okay. Right? They, they might look the same, right? Sort of, you know, just a piece of chalk, piece of cheese. Like, take a bite. You, you'll see there's a difference, right? Right. So anyway, the Australian term, I mean, here it's like apples and oranges or, 
you know, something in pickup trucks or whatever. But the Australian term is, it's like chalk and cheese. It's just really mm-hmm. different. Um, so anyway, one of the things that AMD had was actually a whole a product planning department. So the group I was part of, the uh, processor, processor products group, was one of several teams. There was, I th- so our team was like eight or nine people total, including its section manager. Um, I think product planning was like maybe 90 engineers. Oh, wow. And one of, right, because AMD back in those days had a very broad range of proprietary products, right? They've sold all of that stuff off, but there was a PLD group that did PALS. Mm -hmm. There was a networking group that built Ethernet chips uh, and communication chips and RS-485 stuff. There was a group that was doing video graphics chips. These are all 1980s type stuff, right? So not not like PC type stuff, right? The PC wasn't really much on the horizon yet. It was just, it was basically monochrome monitors at that point, right? right. So there was a graphics group. There was a group doing disk controllers, um, there was a group doing microcontrollers, sort of 8051 type stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a memories group. Um, I used to joke with other people in my group that the memory group's product planners had the easiest job in the company. They needed to come in once a year, take a data sheet, mark it up by doubling all the numbers, yeah. <laughs> throw it back into the thing, and then go away for a year. Right. Okay. Right. So anyway, there was about 90 engineers in product planning. Almost, not all, but almost all of them had industry experience building systems. Mm. Okay. That is almost unique to AMD. Right. Okay. I, I, well, I think Intel has at least something similar in that their processor architects, I think, have all worked on building motherboards, mm-hmm. right? Whereas AMD's, like the guys that ended up, you know, for instance, in AMD's product planning group for graphics chips had worked somewhere else on graphic systems. The mm-hmm. disk controller guys had worked for some big disk manufacturer, right? So, right. so the engineers in product planning at AMD all had, not all, almost all had actual domain-specific industry experience. Right. right. Usually when I'm being cynical, hard to believe I could be cynical. Usually when <laughs> I'm being cynical about just chip companies in general, I my, my common comment, and it's every time I see something stupid in some chip that I didn't design, right, is these people couldn't design a board with two chips to save their life, Mm, right? mm -hmm. And I will say that I've seen that as true of most chip designers, right? They they, they go through the Carver-Mead, you know, playing with rectangles path, right? Right. And lambdas and whatever else. But actually building a system with 50 chips on a board and making the clock tree work and the race conditions work, and the logic worked first time, you know, whatever. Actual system design, 
most chip designers have made it through college out with a degree saying, I know how to run Allegro or Cadence tools or whatever, and I can design you a billion dollar chip, but give them, give them a, you know, an eight bit microprocessor chip and a lead and an EEPROM and ask them to put it together. uh, They have no idea which end of the soldering iron to pick up. Right. 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 So, so that was certainly a difference with AMD's product planners. At Xilinx, which is where I worked later, I was the first product planner, so so I couldn't point to other people who you know who didn't have that. But certainly the IC designers there, um, you know, not I mean they were great IC designers, but they the the common thing you see and I. Not just at AMD, I saw it at AMD, at Xilinx, I saw it at MMI, and I've seen it in data sheets from other companies, is chip designers will have a problem and they'll push it out to the pins and say, the chip is perfect. Right. Right? And they've left something that's now pushed out to the pins, right, which may be impossible to deal with. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I've certainly seen chips where... You know, literally, there's stuff that's happening on the pins where there's no external way to make the chip work reliably. Right. Right. Very sad. the The products end up failing terribly because mm-hmm. anyone who tries to build it either has to put enormous amounts of effort to work around the problem, or they don't spot the problem and they go into production where twenty percent of the boards don't work because right. the chip has this inherent bug and no amount of patch wires is going to make it suddenly better. Right. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I think the, uh, the analog that we have in the, um, uh, software engineering world is, uh, you always want to work with product managers who used to be engineers. That's, mm-hmm. uh, frequently something we look for. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's been a, right. a good rule to live by. Yeah. So anyway, one of the so the, the reason I talked about the fact that you know there was about ninety engineers in product planning at AMD was there was a guiding light for overall for AMD in that time frame, which was that AMD was building the products were building blocks, right? So all of the bit slice was the building blocks to build arbitrary size computers from mini computers mini mainframes to mainframes mm-hmm. the graphics chips were building block chips so there were things like chips that did texturing t- chips that did the line rendering right there were you know basically building blocks in different combinations might let you build different types of graphics systems and and that permeated all of amd's products in the 70s and the 80s the guiding light within AMD's product planning group, uh, which was, you know, I was educated about this from an early time of joining, was that the term was mechanisms, not policies. Mm. So create the mechanisms to let an end customer build the system he wants, right? Don't do something in the chip that sets a policy which he then has no, he or she, has no way of, 
you know, working around or the chip is just not a good fit because you've already decided on a policy that might not match what they need for their system, right? Right. So when you look at all of those types of products, that was kind of a guiding light. I mean, there were some products where, you know, if it was a 2400 board modem chip, AMD made a 2400 board modem chip, then guess what? That one, that was policy from beginning to end because there was a spec for this is what a 24 kilobit modem chip does. These are the frequencies it has to transmit and receive on. These are the signal levels. Here's where the serial comes in and out on RS-232 levels. Build a chip, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So there were some chips where that, you know, where policy was set, you know, by specs. But in general, it was that if you're doing building blocks, build general functionality and flexibility, right? And leave it to the end user to figure out which combination of building blocks is the best way to build his castle. Right. Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back, but uh, this was an incredibly enjoyable conversation uh, for me. me I hope uh, you enjoyed it. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. That's great to hear. Well, Philip, thank you for, uh, for joining us and uh, we'll look forward to, to next time having you on again. Yeah. Okay, Dan, thank you very, very much.